Good morning, Promise Church. I am so happy to be joining with you today in our fourth of Hope in Psalms. And we've traveled through Psalm 1, Psalm 8, and Psalm 27 so far, and today we're going to hit a different tone of Psalm. Today we're walking into Psalm 51. And while we've talked a lot about the situations outside of our life, we've talked about the grandness of God, we've talked about being rooted in the Word of God in different forms of prayer, today we're going to talk about what we do with our own sense of guilt, how we pray through our guilt, how we get to confession. And uh, today is a really interesting sermon because confession has been made something that uh, maybe the Bible didn't see it as before. And maybe there's a, a difference here between what confession has been made in the Christian tradition and what confession is in the biblical model in Psalm 51. One of the things that, that we see is in our current model, there's a cycle of uh, temptation and guilt that we go through as Christians. And I'm going to suggest that this cycle doesn't actually come from God. It may even source from the accuser, the Satan. Uh, and, and this is something that we really need to address. But before I get into that cycle of temptation and guilt and what the Bible addresses as confession, I just want to pray for us. God, we come humbly before you today. We come humbly before you because the previous Psalms have shown us that we do not have the power or the wherewithal to change our lot in life, our significance. You are the one who affirms our significance. You are the one who gives us our lot in life. You are the one who promises a, a great future. And so we hold on to you, as we've said in previous sermons, we hitch our cart to you and your faithfulness. But even as we do that, we do it imperfectly. And today, this sermon isn't about guilt. And this sermon isn't about shame. But this sermon will build in an understanding of how we deal with both of those things. How we process through our guilt when we feel it, when we know that we've let ourselves and our community and, more importantly, you down. And how we can approach you in the midst of our own guilt. God, I pray that you would bless every person in our congregation as we spent time preparing and learning how to prepare for the presence of God. Today, I pray that as your presence settles on us, that you would give us a good sense of what to do with our own imperfection, our own unworthiness. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So maybe you've had the same situation as me, where you've been really good, you've been really well behaved, and morally you've been upstanding. And there's a moment where a desire that you had that you know isn't quite right is there. It's on the surface. You want to do it. You want to indulge. We talked a couple weeks ago about, you know, the, the slavery to our impulses. You want to just forget about the restraints and, and participate in the way of the wicked people that seems to get them ahead. And you're just like, I just want to 
Just let me. And, and the allure is, it's just magnificent. It's, it's strong. It's, it's alluring. It's powerful. You know, it's, it's like a moth to the light. And you're just like, oh my gosh, I can't resist this. I, I really want to do this. And we all know, we've all experienced this form of temptation. We've all experienced this in various different vices. And, and the, the mind argument that happens, oh, well, you know, I, I can't do that because of this and this. Well, it's not really that. It's more this, and that makes it okay. And you get the rationalizing. The rationalizing of whatever this temptation is. The, the fact that maybe it's just one and God will forgive you. Or maybe it's, maybe it's not as bad as it seems, or maybe it isn't actually even what it is. We might say, oh, well, it's not stealing. It's borrowing. I sound like a 10-year-old. Well, it's not like, uh, it's not actually lying. It's just omitting the truth. It's not actually whatever it is. It's this lesser degree, so it's going to be okay. And we try to repackage the temptation and rationalize our way through it, and, and we're struggling, and we're, and we're living in that. You know, um, James 1.14 says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. This is where we are. We get into this place, and every single one of us get there. We are lured by our own desires and we're, we're drawn to them. And the process says that, that, we, that we give birth to it in our mind and then it becomes sin. And when sin is fully grown, it becomes death. But that stuff doesn't come into our minds when we're being tempted. Just the rationalization does. I mean, I might be the only one. And because I'm preaching on camera, I can't see your reaction. But I know, I know that this is us. This is what happens. And we want to throw off the, 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 the shackles of, you know, holiness and just be like, well, screw it, let's do it anyways. And so sometimes we do. Sometimes we just give in and say, it's not worth the fight. It's not worth the intellectual processing, the emotional energy. It's not worth it. Just do it and feel good and whatever. And, and, and we hope that in that moment that we're like, yes, okay, it's okay. It just worked out and it's just fine. But here's what happens after all of that fight. When you finally give in, then the exact same one who was helping you rationalize the move, who was supportive of you, who was like, yeah, you know, you really deserve this. That exact same voice turns around on you faster than anything else in the world and condemns you. That exact same voice comes back at you twice as hard and tells you how you are filthy, inconsistent, unworthy, you're not good enough, you have no discipline, you are not good enough for God, and the voice comes back in your head and tells you that you need to darn well do better. I mean, am I the only one who's ever felt this? I know I'm not, because this is the cycle that Satan has used against God's children 
since the beginning of the whole story. This is the cycle of guilt, the cycle of condemnation. Romans 8 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we come at it with the truth that says there is no condemnation. There is no accusing finger on the other end of my sin that says you are now no longer good enough because I was never good enough in the first place. And so what we need to do is we need to understand what to do with our guilt because just because there's no condemnation, it didn't mean that we weren't guilty. What do we do when we have given in to weakness? What do we do when we submit to the old rule of self, the self-indulgence that I become a slave to my own impulses? What am I supposed to do with the guilt? And Satan's solution is tempt you and then turn on you and convict you and we, or, or condemn you. And we don't see it as both of them being his play. We see one as like, oh, well, Satan tempted me or I was tempted. And, and, then, and then, you know, I felt the, the rightness of guilt. Guilt is a fact, not a feeling. Condemnation says you've been now excluded. You are now out. When we can recognize our guilt, that's a fact. And we can see what God does with it. We are able to then continue in the transformation that God is calling us to. That's enough preamble. And we've touched a little bit of James and talking about how, how Satan kind of turns on us. But I want to look at Psalm 51 today. Because Psalm 51 is written by David, and this is his classic confession psalm. This is the one that gives us motif to say, God, I acknowledge that what I did was wrong, but how are we going to make amends? How are we going to make this right? So, with that longer introduction, we're going to read our psalm. Psalm 51. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, And you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me the wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear the joy and gladness. Let bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. 
Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with your willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth, and declare, or they will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I will give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, in whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. It's a big chapter. There's a lot in it. It's a long chapter. It's uh, 19 verses. And so what we're going to do is we're going to fly through this chapter through the lens of confession. So first off, we have an initial plea. I recognize that God is the only one who can remove guilt and shame from me. Have mercy upon me, O God. Blot out my transgressions. It's only when God does something, and there's something about atonement that's really interesting. That's what, we, that's what we're getting to when we talk about blotting out transgressions. We're talking about atonement. We're talking about the process in which God covers over your wrongs. The things that you feel guilty about, God covers over. And he says, I'm going to make that right. Atonement is, in English, it's a fun word because it's at-one-ment. It's making them together again. And so we've got this this reality of it is only God who can remove my guilt and shame. And I recognize the need for it to be blotted out. And what's really interesting is as we start to study and understand God, we know that it is God who chooses to care. We got that in in Psalm 8. God is the one who chooses to care when he has no legal or otherwise responsibility put onto him. He's the one who chooses to care. He is also the one who chooses to forgive. God is the one who chooses to forgive. There is no coercing God to forgive you. There is no positioning God to say, well, God, if I do this and this and this, then you're going to forgive me. God is the one who holds the choice to forgive in his hands. He's not ruled by another system or another government or another entity. He is God and he chooses to forgive. What he has done in the sacrifices and, and, and the offering of himself on the cross is he has communicated his choice to forgive. He's communicating that to us so that we can understand his forgiveness. So the prayer here is I recognize that God is the only one who can absolve me of my guilt. No priest, no person, nobody else can absolve me of my guilt. It is God. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your steadfast love. 
We recognize that we can't do anything. We could try to make it right. We could try to counteract the, the weight of our contribution to evil and try to make it right, but oftentimes we just muddy it again by adding more evil to the process, to the mix. We must just sit back and let God deal with it. But what, what do we have? We've got the initial confession or the initial plea, please forgive me, God. But then we have the confession. One of the things that, that we see that happen in the church pretty early on is the assumption of forgiveness. In confession, we actually come to a place where we acknowledge the weight of our sin, the weight of our transgression or iniquity. Those are the three words used for it that, that David's used in the psalm, sin, iniquity, transgression. Some people differentiate between them. I'm going to use them as the same thing. They are our guilt. They, they're the action that we did that brings us to a place of guilt. So you'll see me just inter the, use those words. But we assume the forgiveness of God. We assume on it. You know, we, we vacillate between strict consternation. Oh, I'm going to really feel bad for this one. And even in, in the church, you know, in, in our history, we've used self-flagellation. The, the idea of hurting my own body to show God that I am really sorry and to punish myself. You know, my... My, my youngest daughter, Abigail, she's wonderful, and she has such a good conscience about her that when she does something wrong, her impulse is to curl up in a ball. No matter where she is, she'll just curl up in a ball, hide her face, and, and punish herself in terms of, oh, I did something really wrong. We do that as well. We get this... this you know, strict consternation and just, oh, I got to follow the rules and, and I feel bad and whatever. And then we go the exact other side. Well, everybody sins and we're going to sin. So while I sin, I best well enjoy it as I can. And, and we vacillate between these two extremes. But, but what happens here is in Psalm 51.3, we have an acknowledgement, an awareness, and a confession of sin. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. And then it hones in that against you and you only have I sinned. Our sin is against God. It might affect other people. But it is God who is the only one who's actually in the position because of his majesty, because of his rule. He's the only one in position to absolve us of our guilt. And so our sin continues to perpetuate the evil that's around us. And we have to say it is against God and only God is sin. You know, um, Bonhoeffer he wrote The Cost of Discipleship, and The Cost of Discipleship has this very early on concept in it, and, uh, and it's, it talks about cheap grace. And Bonhoeffer got this idea of cheap grace as he traveled to uh, New York 
to escape World War II. And he, he went to New York because he was a theologian and he had the privilege to be able to do that. And as he was talking to the people in New York, the other theologians in the university campuses that he was on, he discovered that intrinsic in this North American Christianity is an assumption on the grace of God. And it's just offered to just anybody over anything and we're all good anyways. And so the mistake that you made wasn't really important. It just happened you know, whatever, sweep it under the rug, we'll just move on. And Bonhoeffer says, you have totally misunderstood confession and sin and forgiveness. You are totally underplaying the reality of what's happening. Our psalmist doesn't do that. Our psalmist says, against you and you only have I sinned, so that you can be blameless in your judgments. We, we acknowledge that this is against God, and then we say, well, it's, it's so that you're able to say, so that God is able to say, look, this is, this is the judgment that I make on you, and, and I am the one who chose to forgive you, or I am the one who withheld forgiveness. The Bible says God gives mercy to those he chooses to give mercy to. What? This is alarming. This is kind of scary as a, as a Christian who's very used to this easily dispensed grace that, that, that there's no consequences for my sin. You know, the, the Bible says that yeah, I, I will show mercy to who I'm, I show mercy to. And you're like, wait, the implication there is that we can't assume on it. Oh, but what about this? What about, what about Jesus who, who died on the cross, who guarantees my salvation, who, yes, yes. But there's an element where we still need to address the weight of our error, of our sin, of our transgression, of our falling into the trap of the temptation that conceived in our minds. And we've got to recognize that, that it's a real thing. It's not just something that's simple. You know, Bonhoeffer continues and he says, sometimes in our evil world, sin is unavoidable. And this is really interesting. Bonhoeffer's great to talk about because he shows better than anybody in his life, not just in his theology, how far he struggled with this. Because after he went to New York to, to avoid the war, he felt a conviction in his spirit that he needed to be there for his brothers and sisters, his pastor friends who were still in the heart of Germany during this great push. And so before the war was actually declared, um, he knew it was coming and so he'd escaped to New York. He learned what he learned and then he just felt convicted. He needed to get back and he got back on one of the last ships coming back before the war was fully open and declared. And he started working with the with the pastors in Germany, and he was a pacifist. He fully believed that Jesus would not harm anybody in, in, in human form until he comes in judgment, and so he was a pacifist. And he's, there's tons of his early writings that talk about all of this. And as Hitler rises to power, you know, he, Bonhoeffer works in this in this you know, civil disobedience and has churches that are illegal and he's training pastors that are illegal and he's, he's doing under the guise of what is now the state-run church. And something in him broke because he realized that Hitler was actually evil and he realized that it was a terrible situation and, 
and he realized that something needed to happen. And his brother, who was, who was in the upper ranks of the army, started to introduce Dietrich Bonhoeffer to a plan, a conspiracy. And you read all about it in his own writings. Bonhoeffer talks about it. And it was a conspiracy to assassinate Hitler. And in Ethics, a book that he wrote uh, while he was in prison because the conspiracy was found out and, uh, and the bomb, although it went off in the same room that Hitler was in, Hitler uh, was actually saved by the, the war command table. Uh, the, the bomb was under the table and it was a big wooden table and it took the shrapnel and Hitler was fine. Other generals died, but Hitler was fine. He actually took it as a sign that God was with him. And so Bonhoeffer was discovered as one of the conspirators. He was thrown into jail, and in jail, Bonhoeffer writes ethics. And what he recognizes in this is sin is sometimes unavoidable. And what we do when we have done everything as well as we can, we throw ourselves on the mercy of God and say, God, against you and you only have I sinned. And I don't recognize, or I don't deserve the fact that you care for me. I don't deserve the fact that you forgive me. I don't even assume on it, but please, God, forgive me. And that's the, that's the attitude that David has here. I've sinned. I've I, I, I brought forth an iniquity, verse 5. You know, verse six, you delight in truth and the inward beating and, and you teach me wisdom. And so we see that, that there's something going on here where we're acknowledging our sin. Sin comes natural and God's transforming my actions. God is the one who is teaching me. So there's six requests offered. I'm gonna fly through them really quick. They're offered and are the six requests, and then there's one offer in return. So this is where David gets into the heart of the confession, where he's like, okay, so I have sinned. You are the one who can forgive me, and I've sinned only against you. And then he says, here are my requests. Cleanse me from the dirtiness of my sin. So purge me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. This is the feeling of guilt. Cleanse me from this. Let's get rid of this guilt, God. Please remove it from me. Let me be made clean again. I mean, you, you've sat in that guilt. You know that feeling of like, oh, I really messed that one up. And part of the prayer of confession is to say, God, please remove that guilt from me. Please cleanse me from it. Let me know that your deep, trend, your deep transformative cleaning has been done. The second one is accept my remorse. So we see it. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. You know, I want to be filled with joy again. I feel terribly sorry for my sin. I want to be filled with joy again. Please accept my remorse and please vindicate me. Validate that. That's an important part of confession. 
That we just, that we have that remorse. You know, the, the Bible says that godly sorrow leads to repentance. And repentance is a total changing of the way that you think and you act. It's, it's that godly sorrow that, that really works in there. It's not guilt. It's actually, oh man, I'm sorry. I feel bad about it. And I'm sorry. And that's important for confession. You know, we want to see God, this is the third one, remove the haunting memory of our sin. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Please, don't remember them anymore. And this has to do with the shame that we feel. How many of you have carried shame because you you didn't measure up? You weren't good enough. You broke down. You, You gave in to temptation and then you feel the shame of it and you feel like, I can't even approach God in prayer. I can't go to church on Sunday. I'm not good enough. I can't be included in the community because if they knew what I knew about me, they would reject me. Shame. And in confession, we say, please blot out the memory of my sin so that I don't carry the shame from it. Fix me so I don't do it again, is the fourth. Fix me so I don't do this again. You know, it's not just enough to just be forgiven. This is where casual assumption of forgiveness falls short. Because the assumption of forgiveness assumes that we're just going to do it again. Real confession says, change something in me, God. Change me so I don't do that again. I don't want to do that again. And that's found in create in me a clean heart. Oh God, renew a right spirit in me. The fifth request is don't give up on me, God. Please don't give up on me. The pleading of our hearts is that God doesn't draw a line in the sand that says, I've forgiven you all, I can forgive you and I'm done now. Please don't give up on me, God. And you know, we've got these ideas that God would never give up on us. And yes, you're right, God would never give up on us, but we come to a place where we would give up on ourselves and so also give up on our relationship with God. If it wasn't for the assurance that God isn't giving up on us, I know I would have given up. I would have been like, God, you must have given up on me already. I'm done. I guess I'm just going to rot. I'm terrible. And trust me, I know enough Christians who have given up because they thought that God had given up on them. The prayer here is a prayer of affirmation. God, don't give up on me. Let's look at it. It says, cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Oh, don't give up. Don't disqualify me, God. Help me be different. Let the peace, number six, let the peace of our relationship resume. Restore to me the joy of my salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. In this, we see these six requests being put out to God. In light of my guilt, I put these requests out to God. And we can put that, you know, all up on the screen, all six of them. Cleanse me of the dirtiness of my sin. Accept my remorse. Move the haunting memory of my sin. 
um, fix me so I don't do it again. Don't give up on me and let the peace of our relationship resume. What we see here is we see a full processing of my responsibility in the, in the sin and a full reliance on God's gracious, continued forgiveness, transformation, and presence, all at his will, all at his request. I can't control this, but God is the one who grants it and says, as you process through this, see to it that you allow me to change you. Beautiful grace. This is not cheap grace. This is not simple. This is not just an assumption on forgiveness because I said my sin to God. Oh God, I sinned by having a bad thought. Done. No, this is a full dive in, recognizing the extent of it, recognizing the consequences of it, and then throwing ourselves at the mercy seat of God. The offer that's given in return is really interesting because, because the psalmist then says, if you do all of this, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Wow. Now, really interesting because we know that David isn't convincing God of anything, but he's making a pledge to God in response to his forgiveness. He's saying, I'm going to teach people about how to be right with you. Beautiful. This is what comes out of, it's not just, oh, well, now I can be in the presence of God again, which is true, you can. That when God has forgiven you, when you have been cleansed, when, when God's heart, uh, when God changes the, your heart inside of you, you can now be in, the, in relationship and in the presence of God again, and that's really good. But there's a step further where it's like God says, okay, now join my mission join with me, and, and the offer is, then I will teach transgressors your ways. That's beautiful. You'd think the psalm would be over, but there's two more requests and an offer that, uh, that, that David makes. He says, finally remove my guilt from me. That's verse 14, deliver me from blood guiltness, O God, and let me praise you freely again without the voice in my mind that condemns me. Wow. There it is. The freedom from the shame and the guilt. The God, let my voice just praise you again. Let me come back to rightness. And the rightness is me understanding who I am as just a man. Who are you that you are mindful of me? The son of man that you care for me. And, and I'm put back in my place. I am but a creature created in love and who expresses love and worship in return. Let me praise you again. Verse 15, O Lord, open my lips and let my mouth, uh, and my mouth will declare your praise. There's a couple of interesting things that he finishes up the psalm with. The first is that he, he makes an observation about sacrifices. See, David had just really screwed up his life and he just sinned and there was a lot of shame brought into his household, a lot of shame brought into his own heart, a lot of public shame. He'd murdered. He'd committed adultery. He was having a, a, a child with somebody else's wife. There's a lot of shame. This is scandal beyond anything that you could see in any political structure that we have right now. 
And, and so David, I'm sure, he would have gone to the temple and he would have sacrificed bulls and he would have just been like, good, now I'm absolved. But something didn't work in his heart. It was like he was trying to get that cheap grace. Well, if I just sacrifice this bull, then we're good. And right, God, we're just going to be fine. But he knew in his heart there's something else that needs to happen. And that's what led him to this process. And it says, for you didn't delight in sacrifice or I would give it. He knew that there's something missing in the assumption of the system. Oh, well, this is how we deal with it. No, there's something missing in the assumption of the system. There's got to be something deeper that happens inside of me. And so he, he resolves and he says, what you're looking for, God, is that contrition. That contrition of heart that says, process this all the way through, like what we did in the, six, in the six requests. Process it all the way through. And then God can fix the evils that are inside of us. Confession is us realigning our hearts to God, realigning his vision of the world, realigning our intent to avoid evil because evil is what works against God's great vision and his great purpose and his plan for us. And so he's, he's called us to realign in confession where we say, okay, God, I'm the one that fell short. I'm the one that didn't carry my weight. And now I put it up to you and you, by your grace, remove that guilt from me. Psalm puts our hearts and actions back in line with God and like, it's not a secret recipe to make God do something. It's a process in which I go through. Confession's a process in which I go through, in which you go through, that allows us to investigate the honestness of our responsibility and the greatness of God's forgiveness to the point that he blots it out from his memory. The shame is actually removed. So when confessing, consider Psalm 51. State your request for forgiveness. Do the work of understanding your error. Ask God to remove the error from you and cleanse you in a way that makes it so that you're not going down the same road again and again flippantly. And ask to be reinstated so that you can understand the participation of God's grace. None of this is, is, is hit around the idea of, well, it's not going to be given to you. It's all around the idea of taking it seriously and diving in and allowing God to do the deep heart work of changing us, of developing us. And if we don't do it, if we just flippantly assume on God's forgiveness and say, Jesus died on the cross for all my sins, I don't need to worry about it. When we, when we don't do it, we never find ourselves liberated from that taskmaster, that tyrant that is myself and, and my own impulses. If you want to experience freedom, confession is a major element of freedom, as we found here. God, I thank you that you have done what no other system can do. You remove guilt. You are the one who forgives. 
You are the one who removes shame. Every other system has some form of payback, some form of, some form of just retribution, some form of, of um, pleading our case and trying to absolve it ourselves and countering the balance of evil with good. But you remove all of that and you say, I forgive you and I can reinstate you. But in that, don't let us so glibly pass over the reality of the heart change. Create in us a clean heart, one that is unmired by sin and transgression and iniquity. Restore us, O oh God, to the position of relationship and joy. And God, grant us peace, your peace. In Jesus' name, amen.